The reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, also always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the life and the hope that we find in it. And we pray that now as we turn to consider that chapter that we have read together, it will be once again light for our path and bread for the journey. In Jesus' name, amen. I imagine you've heard a few sermons preached on this chapter. I have certainly heard a few and preached a few. It's one of those chapters that travels with you throughout your life and constantly takes on new dimensions, which reflect where you are in your life's journey and what you've learned and what you've experienced. But just this last week or two, it's taken on another dimension for me, which is what brought me back to it. When I first encountered it as a young Christian, um, it seemed to me to be a kind of blueprint for how a Christian ought to be. That I ought to be somebody who was never rude or selfish or, you know, all the things that teenage children usually are. I mean, how do you expect a 13-year-old girl never to be rude? Um, hmm. It was way beyond me. And I think I lived with a sense all the time of it as a kind of rebuke. So for me, this chapter was always a rebuke. And there's a sense in which that remains true, and probably always will be. But then as I grew up in my faith a little further, and I came to realize that actually this chapter isn't about me, this is a chapter about the gift which God gives and which the Spirit of God brings. And if that's the case, if it's a description 
of what the Spirit of God brings when we give that Spirit house room, then God is like this. Then this is a description of God himself. And he is the one who keeps no score of wrongs and who believes and hopes and endures all things. Now, how wonderful. And I have spent the rest of my life going back to that again and again because we do keep creating this bogeyman, this person who notices every time you exceed the speed limit and every time you leave your room. You know, that kind of God, we keep recreating this monster. So we have to keep relearning the fact that God keeps no score of wrongs. And so that's another truth that has traveled with me, and I keep going back to that. If this is a description of God, what a wonderful God, what a lovable God we serve. And then I became a minister, and people kept asking for this for their wedding day. Any of you here have it for your wedding? Ah, uh-huh, right. Now, at the time, Christine did, at the time, when I first began to do it, I thought, ah, oh, no, no, this is not about that kind of love. Because I'd heard all these sermons saying there's this kind of love and that kind of love and another kind of love, which is nonsense, of course. There's only one kind of love. Love is that ability to travel out of yourself, to forget yourself in celebration and delight of another, to cherish another just for a short time to put yourself to one side in the celebration of that other. Whether it's a friend, a lover, a husband, a child, a brother or sister in the church, it is the same thing and it is all a gift from God. And wherever that kind of love exists, whether God is named and known or not, God is there. And so I came to see that this was absolutely the right thing for a wedding absolutely the right thing. And any wedding rooted in that love, any marriage rooted in that love, is going to be tough for the decades that lie ahead, durable, and will sweeten into that very beautiful thing that a true marriage comes to over the years. So that was okay. All of those things. But then recently I began to look at it again because my experience has moved on. And every time that happens, how we read scripture must develop and change and grow because it is the living word. I came to it again when my mother died two or three years ago. I'm not very good with dates. Two years, three years. In Australia. My mother, very reserved person. She never spoke about her personal faith, although she was a devout and church-going Baptist, I'm pleased to say, all her life. Towards the very end, the last two or three weeks of her life, she began to speak to her pastor about the hope of seeing him face to face. And the thought of seeing him face to face supported and strengthened her through those last days of her life. And at her wedding, we read the Tennyson poem, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. So then a new dimension. And now this last couple of weeks, my mother-in-law is on that same journey. And as I look at her, I think of the way she is known in full now. The whole of her life 
can be offered back to God as a complete, rounded, perfect thing. Not perfect. She's an imperfect human being. But you understand what I mean. It has come to its conclusion, or is coming to its conclusion. I don't know the whole of that story, and my husband doesn't know the whole of that story. Only God was there the moment she was conceived and will be there the moment she dies. He knows in full, in depth and in round, all that has made that individual life. So another dimension. So all these dimensions. And if we were to talk about it, I'm sure you'd all come back with, and there's this, and there's that, and I discovered, and this came alive to me, because that's what scripture is, isn't it? But what I want to focus on particularly is what this came to mean to me as a regional minister, looking after all these churches. Because, of course, really, it's not to be taken as a separate poem. It is part of this long discussion with the church in Corinth. Now, I had some fairly loopy churches, I have to tell you, but none quite as loopy as Corinth. I mean, this is a stomach ulcer of a church, isn't it? I mean, it is absolutely dreadful church. There was everything wrong with this church. At the end of uh, his second letter, Paul tells us a bit more about it, and this is what we learn about it there. He says he's worried about coming to meet them. He says he was afraid if he comes... This is 2 Corinthians 12. I was afraid that when I come, I might not find you as I want you to be, and you might not find me as you want me to be. I'm afraid there might be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Mm. Right. And when he came, he did. (laughs) That was just what he found. He found a church where there was sexual immorality, He found a church where there was celebrity culture. He found a church with fan clubs, cliques. He found a church that was obsessed with what I would call spiritual bling. You know, the shiny stuff, the glitzy stuff. He found a church that was a mess. And yet he really loved this church. He didn't give up on it didn't wash his hands of it. And people do of church, don't they? They wash their hands of church, and you can fully understand why they do, because we are always a scandal. Even the best church is a scandal. When you look at what Christ calls us to be and what we are, we are scandalous. And it's very easy and fully understandable why the people walking around in Horsham today, so many of them, if you were to say, what do you think of church? Oh, a load of hypocrites, they say, this sort of thing. And wash their hands of the church. But Paul did not do that. He loved the church. He was passionate about the church. As far as Paul was concerned, the church was where the glory of God shone. The church was the hope of the world. Because the church is a laboratory of love. It's a school for love. It's where we learn how to love people who are quite different from us, who we would not have chosen, who we don't particularly like, but who God has called together. It's where we learn how to do grace. What does grace mean? How do we forgive each other? How do we cope with each other? 
This is where we learn these skills. We learn how to live together in love. And there has to be some place in the world where people are learning that because this is a desperate and blood-soaked world. If we cannot live together in love, despite the gift of God's Holy Spirit, there is no hope for the world. But if we can, then we are that glimpse of hope. We are that light that shines in a dark place and is never put out. And as far as Paul was concerned, the church was the glory of God, and the church was the gospel. Paul had no sense of individuals being plucked like brands from the fire and saved on an individual journey. And when he said, it is by grace you are saved through faith, he used the plural. It's all of us together. It is together with all the saints that we will know the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God. Not individually, solely. Because how do you learn to love people if you haven't got anybody else around to learn to love? I can be perfect on a desert island. Living with my family is another matter. Living with the church. We are called together to hone each other, to learn from each other, to discover together that depth and that breadth and that length and that height. And so Paul does not give up on the church. He loves it, and he labors with it. And this church, this loopy church, in response to all that was wrong with it, he very seriously looks at the root of the problem. The root of the problem in the church at Corinth, and I'm sure this is not the root of a problem here at Horsham. I'm sure these things are not true of you. But there are some useful things in here. It was immaturity. It was childishness. Again and again, Paul calls Christians to maturity. There's that lovely passage in Ephesians, isn't there, where he says this. He says, um, he calls us to be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature altogether attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we won't be infants anymore, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every word of teaching and the cunning deceitfulness of men. But speaking the truth in love, whoa, that's not an easy thing to do. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, who is Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There's a very beautiful expression um, in Dante. My husband is a specialist in Dante, so he tends to creep into my sermons from time to time. But there's this expression, becoming mature in the flame of love. Isn't that a beautiful expression? To become mature in the flame of love. This is the call that Paul reiterates again and again. And throughout this letter to Corinth, right at the beginning, he says, you are not mature yet. I can't call you mature. You're still infants. I can only give you milk. You're not strong enough for anything more. And later on, when he's talking about tongues, he says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be grown up. Grow up. 
That's what he says to this church. Grow up. And here in this chapter, what does he say? I think that that opening bit is an ironic bit. I think he's being ironic. I think he's saying to these infantile Christians who do believe that they can walk on water, that they are going to be the great heroes and heroines that we all think we're going to be, that I thought I was going to be when I stood in that pool age 13 and said, all for Jesus, I surrender. Yes, indeed. And I meant it, and I don't want to mock that because that is powerful and crucial at the beginning of our Christian life. But as the years go by, I've discovered that I am no hero of the faith. Very far from it. I have not given all I possess to the poor, and my body is not very singed. I don't know all things. Far from that 13-year-old who was the perfect little Calvinist, my journey has been a journey into ignorance. I know less and less, although I know it in a different part of who I am. I know the grace of God because I have experienced it. I know the love of God. I know the call of God that comes again and again in so many different ways. But I wouldn't want to give you any watertight explanation of the Trinity. I don't think I could do that. I know less and less. Now we see through a glass darkly. Paul says to them, do you indeed, is this really true? Is it true that you can speak in the language of angels? Can you? Mm, I'm impressed. Can you prophesy and fathom all mysteries? All mysteries? Wow. That's quite something. And you can move mountains. Right. Show me one. I'd love to see that. That would be exciting. And of course you would give your body to be burned. Of course you would. Of course you would. I think there's a degree of irony coming in here. I think there's just that little hint of saying, okay, is this all true? Even if that were true, which it patently isn't, until you learn how to love, you haven't even begun. You have not even begun your journey into God. If you are not patient, are you patient? If you are not kind, if you're envious or boastful, if you're rude, self-seeking, if you are touchy, very sensitive, quick to take offense, if you're like that, if you store up the story of what she did to me 20 years ago, if you retell every affront and offense that you receive to somebody else. In all these things you show that you have hardly begun your journey into God. But when God comes alongside, indwells, lives with, lives in you, to the extent and as long as that is true, then you can begin to love like that. It's never yours. You never become God. You're always just offering house room to this love. And as soon as you disconnect, 
you will fall back into the rudeness and the impatience and the touchiness and the because that doesn't we can't put it in the we can't put God in the bank and say, right, got him now. But again and again, from day to day, from day to day, he offers you his life and his breath and his presence and his love. And then you can begin to grow. And his fire can begin to burn some of the rubbish out, the nonsense, the silliness, the little vanities, the, as I say, the touchiness, the, you know, all the second-rate stuff that we carry around with us that disappoints us, makes us a disappointment to ourselves and a bad taste in our own mouth. When you say, oh, did I really say that? Did I really do that? I can't believe that. But you did. But then he says, here's a new day. Here's a new day. Live this one with me. Let's make this a good one. Here's another new day. And that's grace at work. So Paul is calling this congregation, these people, to grow up. And he goes on, doesn't he, to say, all your skills, gifts, knowledge, wisdom, understanding is a tiny fraction. When you come to God, you will see the fullness. You will be amazed. I know so little. I know so little about myself. I don't know what my potential is for good or for bad. I really don't. I don't know how I would respond to some of the things I see other people handle. I don't. Or what riches there might be in me that I haven't yet discovered. God hasn't discovered. I don't know you at all. Well, that's not quite true. I know Sue and Graham, and I've met Christine and Doug, and perhaps one or two others. I don't know you. If I don't even know myself, how can I know you? As for God, what do I know? Well, if that is the case, if it is true that I know so little, then I really need to be a little modest about how I express myself, about how I express my opinion. I need to be a little bit humble when I feel very convicted by something. That's right, I've got the right principle there. As I said, I grew up as a Baptist. Baptists know what they think. But I hope we know what we think with enough grace to know we might be wrong. Because we might. I might, if I know how little there is in my understanding, be really glad to learn from you. Because you have riches to share with me. And I won't plumb the heights and depths of God alone, only together with all the saints. And I might... When there is a disagreement, when there is a falling out over something, I might be prepared to think again. And so little by little, as my ego takes up slightly less of the horizon than it used to, as like toad, I'm gradually brought back down to size, there's a bit more space on my horizon for you. And together we grow in love. We build each other up in love. We learn this delicate and difficult art of living together in love. This is the art that Paul is speaking about here. Living together humbly, gently, courteously. Travelling together on a journey which is into both ignorance and into glory. 
until finally all of us come to the glory that awaits us in the great celebration, in the presence of God, and are amazed. May it be so. Amen.